Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 238 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. How are we doing on this fine Thursday morning? You know, good. Here in the, in Ohio, it's starting to have a little warm spell. I think it's supposed to get up to the mid-50s today. I don't know what we're going to do with ourselves, Mark. Yeah, I know. It's been uh, nice. It actually kind of feels like a heat wave with uh, how cold <laughs> it's been for the past uh, past month or so. So, yeah, definitely looking forward to uh, spring because uh, golf season in Ohio at least falls uh, shortly after that. So um, getting the, the itch back again to, to get back on the course. So love that. And then we're on the kind of the tail end of the bulk of earning season for the market. So I know that has kept you busy as our chief investment officer here at the firm. So what's your kind of thoughts on uh, big picture and earnings season so far? Yeah, I mean, things seem to be coming in um, better than expected. And I think, you know, the thing I want to point out to people is, you know, most of the time earnings are going to come in better than expected. Why? Because the market goes up most of the time. Um, so it's really only during times of really, in my opinion, extreme pain when, you know, earnings across the board are, are really down. So um, consumers are still spending money, um, you know, so I think for the most part, it's been it's been a positive reaction, especially from the general market uh with the s p being up um you know a couple percentage points already through the first month month and a half of the year so i agree um so speaking of that we will uh quickly review the month to date and year-to-date performance of the major market indices that we track this data is from y charts and as of the market close on february 7th S&P 500 index up 3.1% for the month and up 4.7% for the year. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 1.4% for the month, up 2.6% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 3.9% for the month and up 5% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index uh, up slightly 0.2% for the month, but still down 3.7% for the year. And then the Vanguard All World X United States ETF up 1% for the month of February and still down 0.7% for the year. Three month treasury rate at 5.43%, the two year treasury rate at 4.41%, the 10 year treasury rate at 4.09%. Um, so interesting to see the market get off to a hot start here in February, Matt. I know we talked probably on the podcast a few times and uh, in our market updates and meetings with clients that February, uh, especially in an election year, but just February in general, uh, tends to be relatively weak month for the market. But most of that weakness we see comes in the second half of the month. Yeah. Um, so just because we're off to, you know, a strong start with the first, you know, five trading days of the month doesn't mean it's going to persist through the month, although it can. Um, but it's just interesting to see that 
uh, we're getting some strength here in February where historically this month is is not great. Yeah, I think my only kind of reply to that is, is after 2022, so many people sold risk assets. And I think as that market has, as the markets in general have recovered since then, my feeling based upon the data is that most people are underweight risk relative to where they've been historically. And a lot of these dips are going to get bought. And so you, know, you saw a little bit of weakness right at the uh, tail end of January. I thought it would get a little worse. That dip got bought. So what I'm going to be really looking at, and I think sharing this insight with our listeners and viewers is, is, is important, any sort of weakness, how prolonged that weakness goes before the dip buyers come in could be a preview of how the rest of the year goes from a strength standpoint. My two cents. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. First thing I had was uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about our January market indicators that we follow uh, and all the data that I'm going to be quoting here is from the Stock Traders Almanac. Um, you know, at the end of each year, Matt, we usually always discuss uh, three market indicators that help us gauge how the new year might play out. And when these three indicators are positive for the S&P 500, the likelihood of a good year increases substantially. So the first of these three indicators is the Santa Claus rally, which is just the last five trading days of the year, plus the first two trading days of the new year. So obviously uh, for this year, that was the last five trading days of 2023, the first two trading days of 2024. Next is the first five days of January indicator. So nothing really more needs to be said is how the markets perform, uh, specifically the S&P 500, the first five days of January. Uh, and then last but not least, the January barometer uh, just simply is January positive or negative for the S&P 500. So I want to review these indicators for 2024 since we just closed out January last week. Uh, Santa Claus rally in the first five days of January both had negative returns for the S&P 500. However, the January barometer uh, was positive for the S&P 500. So what does that mean? Um, one out of these three indicators were positive. So some people might be like, oh, one out of three, that's not a very good hit rate. That's like 33%. But I want to take a deeper dive uh, into some more stats just to see if we can find any patterns that might help us identify how 2024 might play out. Okay. And I will admit uh, I peeked at the outline a couple minutes before we started recording and uh, we pretty much had a, a very similar piece of research. So I will save you some breath uh, when <laughs> it's your turn to go since we have uh, the same research essentially. Um, so Going back all the way to 1938, if January was positive like it was this year, the next 11 months average plus 11.6% uh, gain, okay? Mm -hmm. And since 1950, if January was positive, the full year registered a gain 84% of the time. These are all and accurate. And there have been three, only three prior instances when both the Santa Claus rally and the first five days of January were negative with a positive January barometer. Those years were 1985, 1991, 1993, and now obviously 
2024. And I want to read the returns of those uh, those years for for the S&P 500. So 1985, the full year was up 26.3 percent. 1991, which is pretty creepy, also up exactly 26.3 percent. Uh, 1993 up 7.1% and we're going to have to see how 2024 plays out. Last thing I want to mention here, Matt, is that since 1950, when the January barometer is positive during election years, the rest of the year has never been negative with an average annual gain of over 15%. Um, So I think those are some pretty strong stats. Um, you know, again, just because this is how it's played out in the past doesn't mean that it's going to play out this way in the future. You know, past returns are not indicative of, of future returns, but uh, it is encouraging for uh, for the rest of the year, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, obviously we pay a lot of attention to seasonality, especially during election years. Um, you know, so what are your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, I think that January barometer um, I hold to, to high regard. Again, it should be a data point. I wouldn't be making investment decisions solely on this, but I think it it bodes well for the rest of the year. Think of it as you have a tailwind. The other thing I want our listeners and viewers to disseminate from this is just because it's an election year doesn't mean it's going to be a bad year for the market. Mm-hmm. You know, will there be corrections this year? Will there be sell-offs? Yeah. When is that going to happen? No one knows. But I know the way investor psyches work. The market shoots first and asks questions later. You got to know that weakness is going to come at some point. But for the most part, you got some history on our side. And that just, in my opinion, provides a tailwind. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, And election years just, you know, they just tend to be average. Um, They tend to be average years. So I think everyone you know what i'm okay with that that excites me yeah me too me too and and i think people just automatically assume they're like oh you know stocks must do horrible during election years and it's like eh, not really what the data shows but i'll be um, curious when it gets real quick i'll be curious when it gets to like uh the the silly season of the political uh presidential election all the crazy messages I'll be curious this year because it's just I feel like the last you know eight years, the American public's been just inundated with all these messages. I wonder if if, if the average citizen's going to be more kind of um, deaf to all the messages in the fall, or are we going to play right into it and we're going to have that traditional market weakness with the uncertainty right before the election? We'll see. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be going to be interesting, though, because typically, like we talked about, um, September and October tend to be just horrendous months in election year. So correct. Uh, we will definitely keep an eye out on that. Um, yep. Second thing I had was a blog post from Rocky White from Schaefer's Investment Research. Um, so Rocky wanted to examine um, the performance of the S&P 500 after prior year gains of 20% or more. Uh, so Jenna will throw up this data for everybody on uh, watching on YouTube, and then this will be in our show notes. Uh, he says that the S&P 500 gained 24% in 23, a strong year for stocks. I was curious how stocks have tended to behave after these overwhelmingly positive years. The table below summarizes the S&P 500 returns following years with gains of at least 20%, a phenomenon observed 20 times since 1950. 
It's good news that the market was up this January. In the 10 instances when January was positive, after a 20% or more gain for the index in the previous year, the S&P 500 averaged a 15% return for the rest of the year with all 10 returns positive. So I know that this might sound repetitive for people, Matt, about these different stats about, you know, January being positive, it being an election year, how the rest of the year is going to play out. But we're kind of like hitting it from a bunch of different angles and we're not having the exact same indicators, but similar indicators. Everything is kind of, you know, pointing to it's actually going to be a, a pretty decent, decent year. Um, again, past performance, not indicative of future returns, but I think that just strengthens uh, the argument for the market finishing higher in stocks when you have all these different data points. Data points, yep. Kind of pointing to the pointing to the same thing. And I think that's that's how that's how you got to look at it. Is you know if you had a lot of data points that were throwing out cautionary signals, you got to take that into account in your overall investment thesis. How you weight that in your thesis is up to you, right? Now, obviously, we're professional money managers, and we have our own proprietary way of kind of weighting this type of data. I wouldn't make sole investment decisions on it, but you know what? It ain't bearish. I'll tell you that right now. And this type of data, all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at different sort of sets that are all kind of stacking up kind of similar. It's not bearish. No, no. Uh, Quickly, the last thing I had, Matt, was a quote from Paul Tudor Jones, uh, famous money manager. Uh, He said, nothing is ever too cheap or too expensive. It's all just numbers. And uh, I really like this because, um, you know, at the end of the day, stock prices are just based on supply and demand. Um, You know, you can have a company like NVIDIA that has been, quote unquote, overvalued for the past five years, and it's been on a rocket ship to the moon, right? And it hasn't stopped. Um, You know, it's just what willing what people are willing to pay for stocks is what the value is assigned to it. I have had this conversation with my wife the other day. It's like I was going I went to DLM this weekend to go get groceries and eggs were like almost $7, you know, per case and my butcher that me and you have been to before just yep. like 20 15 20 minutes away Eggs were like half of that cost. So I was like, I'm done going to DLM to get eggs. I'm going to my butcher because I can get it at a better price. It's all supply and demand, right? But DLM doesn't care if I think that price or prices are too expensive there. They're not going to be get like, it. oh, Mark I- thinks that eggs are too expensive. We're going to lower the lower the cost for Mark and everybody else. No, it's not how it works. It's like, okay, I'll go somewhere else and buy eggs. And it's the same thing with the stock market. If you think Something is too expensive. It doesn't mean it is to other people. Um, you know, we've seen seen this this song and dance over and over and over again that people are like, stocks too expensive compared to historical norms, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the same thing on the other side. Some people are like, oh my gosh, this stock is so cheap or this index is so cheap. So it's a great time to buy it. And it's like, okay, well, that could be right, but it also could be the case that it's cheap for a reason because you shouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I um, give plenty of examples of that. Yeah. So it's that's why I don't I don't like to get into these, you know, cheaper, expensive, 
spats with people because at the end of the day, it's based on supply and demand. Well said. I don't have anything to add to it because I would just prolong this topic because we don't need to. I think you said it perfectly. All right. Well, at, uh, that's the case. I'm going to turn it back over to you. All right. My first piece, I just got two now because Mark did hit the nail on the head. We had some overlap in a good way. I love that. So the second, uh, I'm sorry, the first thing I got is the stock market may be in a bull market, but bonds are a completely different story. Jenna's going to put up this um, this uh, X post uh, from Charlie Bellello, um, and this was from February 1st, Mark. This will be in our show notes for all of our traditional podcast listeners, and it will be accessible through all of our social media uh, on all the various uh, social media sites. What you're going to see is a chart of the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index prior to the great financial crisis. This was known as the Lehman Brothers uh, Aggregate Bond Index. And the data sets, uh, they go back uh, all the way to the mid-70s, Mark. And what you're going to notice here very quickly is what? The, we are still in a bear market for, uh, for bonds. And we've seen this drawdown the max drawdown that it, they saw was 17.2%, and they've only roughly made back of that about 7%. And they've been in this drawdown now for 42 months. The closest data point is in the early 80s when it was had a drawdown of 16 months till it got back to its high watermark. The More next doubled. Yeah. And then the next chart Jenna's going to show is a chart that shows those drawdowns going back to the mid 70s and you know it just visually shows you how bad and poor the bond market has been okay why am i highlighting this i think a lot of investors have tossed bonds to the side from an asset allocation standpoint why am i going to deal with this if they don't work anymore and i'm throwing it out there they will work again I know that with the Fed raising interest rates as aggressively as they did to combat inflation, it has caused this negative performance within the bond market. I feel that as things normalize the next couple of years, I'm going to give you the most likely outcome. This by no means is guaranteed that it's going to happen. I'm just going to throw out what I think the most likely outcome is. The Fed, generally speaking, will be on a slow lowering cycle. What do I mean by that? I think you're going to slowly see interest rates come down. How quick into what number? We could debate that literally for days. But generally speaking, I think that's the mode of operation the next couple of years. Lowering interest rates when it comes to the bond market tends to be a bullish thing. Having said that, I don't think the asset class of bonds is dead. I know that they're going through one of their worst periods. We could look at government data, government bond data. It goes back hundreds of years. You literally have to go back to the inception of the American Republic to see such bad government bond performance. Having said that, the message is don't give up on bonds in an asset allocation. They have their place. Could they still be an underweight? Of course but they're not always going to be this bad. Mark, Mr. CIO, your comments on the topic. Yeah, I have two. Um, the first thing is, you know, people before uh, 2020 were like, hey, bonds 
are a safe haven and they're supposed to act as a buffer um, to market performance. And, you know, people are asked, well, where do we, where do people get that information from? This second chart that is on the screen right now is where people get that information from. You can see, you know, in the mid eighties, the max drawdown was 4.9%, the late eighties, 4.9%. In January of 94, bonds were down 5%. In early 2000s, bonds were only down 3.5%. Same thing in the great financial crisis in 08, bonds were only down 3.8%. So where this narrative came from, um, that bonds are a buffer to stocks, was literally from the 80s up until 2020, right? And that's how bonds acted up until that point. Uh, but now they're acting differently. Um, so the second piece I want to make, second point I want to make is, is that people might be saying, hey, you know, interest rates or, or bond rates are the highest that they've been in a long time. Why, why aren't we buying more bonds if we can get, you know, five or, or 6%? And my response to that is, especially with with bond funds, but this is true for individual bonds as well, bond prices can fluctuate throughout the year. It's not like you buy a bond and that price stays where it is and you just get that five or 6% yield. Bonds yep. and interest rates have that inverse relationship. So a lot of the times if interest rates are going up, bond prices are going down. So just because a, a, a liquid corporate bond ETF, for example, is yielding 5%. If the price of that ETF is down 5%, then you get zero, right? Um, so that, I just want to make make that point as well, because, you know, bond interest rates are, are as juiced up as they've been in a long time. Um, but there is that give and take with that inverse relationship. Absolutely. And I think the thing that's kind of crazy with that too, Mark, is an investor can sit there and say, oh, they care about the income. They care about the, also the bottom line value of the portfolio. Right. Exactly. You know, the other thing I think that's kind of humorous as you were going over that chart is when I started in the industry in 99, advisors were still talking about how tough the market was in 94. It's just crazy. All right. My next piece um, is my intellectual wisdom of the day. I had a piece on this last week. I'm bringing it back, Mark, okay? So here it is. Be careful on focusing just on the share price of a stock. In my years of being a professional wealth advisor, I've seen investors favor cheap stocks as an investment strategy. Now, that can mean a lot of things, right, Mark? Let me be more specific. Cheap stocks on a share price basis. Normal premise I hear, Mark, but Matt, I could buy more shares. You hear this too, don't you, Mark? You do. So here is a piece. This is from uh, Bespoke Investment Group from February 1st. Jenna's going to put this up for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our show notes for our traditional podcast listeners. And this piece in the Bespoke research is titled High Share Prices Versus Low Share Prices. And this is what it said. It shouldn't matter, but we saw a huge disparity in performance of stocks with high versus low share prices in January. Here's the numbers. As shown below the large cap Russell 1000, the 100 stocks that began 2024 with the lowest share price 
fell on average 7.4% in January. While the 100 stocks that began the year with the highest share prices rose on average 2%. So general observations about this topic. First, sub $10 per share stocks tend to have weaker balance sheets than stocks above $10 a share. It's a very big normaliz uh, generalization that I'm making here. My personal opinion, generally that's what I see. Second thing, sub $10 per share stocks tend to have large uh, swings on a percentage basis, more volatility. Again, personal observation. Third, sub $10 per share stocks tend to be less liquid and have smaller market capitalizations than stocks above $10 per share. Next, people attempt to catch a falling knife when buying sub $10 stocks, hoping for that huge move or reversal to the upside. And last but not least, most professional money managers are unable to own any stock that is priced at less than $5 a share. Mutual fund managers, pension funds, they usually kind of have it in their mode of operation that they can't do that. So where do I stand on this? My words of wisdom, don't specifically focus on price per share as an investment strategy. Mark, your words of wisdom on the topic. Yeah, I think where this comes into play a lot, um, at least for us and you know our clients, is when uh, a, a stock that people own uh, splits its shares. Right. So when that share price becomes cheaper uh, on a per share basis, people think, hey, well, you know, Amazon's no longer, you know, a thousand dollars per share. Now it's, you know, one hundred and fifty dollars per share that will open Amazon's stock up to a lot more people that have brokerage accounts with lower uh, lower balances that they can now buy Amazon stock. Where in the past, they're like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm not going to pay $1,000 a share for one share of stock. Um, but we've gone over that research uh, on this po podcast before, Matt, and not saying that it doesn't help, but it's really kind of neutral. Um, you know, what we found was kind of 50% of the time um, share uh, you know, shares do better the next year after a stock splits. Um, and 50% of the time, uh, it does, it does worse. So it, it, it doesn't really, um, make that big of a difference. And, and most certainly, like you said, shouldn't be, um, an investment strategy or part of an investment strategy for, for the majority of, of people investing. Yeah, I mean, you take the Amazon example, not a recommendation for or against the name, but after they did that huge, huge split, split adjusted, the high for that stock was like in the mid 180s. It made a round trip, went down to the mid 80s. So it went from the mid 180s to the mid 80s. And now it's back, in, you know, in the mid mid hundreds. And so just because a stock splits doesn't mean it's a better value, it's cheaper, you know, fill in the blank, right? Doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that at all. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So that's my intellectual wisdom of the week. I'm filming the listeners. Um, no, I love it. No, I love love the uh, the words of wisdom. So let's uh, keep that keep that rolling in 2024 if we can. Um, financial planning topic of the week. Uh, this was an article written by Christine Benz on 
Morningstar titled What's Changing for Retirement in 2024. So she says the income limits uh, for tax brackets increased in 2024, affecting thresholds for both income and capital gains taxes. In addition to affecting how much tax a person will pay on their income, these higher thresholds could allow certain people to take better advantage of strategies such as capital gains harvesting. Uh, for example, realizing capital gains at the 0% capital gains tax rate, which goes up to $47,025 for singles and $94,050 for couples, and that's income in 2024. So if you're married filing joint and you make $94,050 or less, um, you will be able to realize gains at the the 0% capital gains tax rate. And they have to be okay. long-term capital gains. They have to be long-term capital gains. Meaning you've held Correct. for at so least held, a year and a day. Right. Correct. Uh, and then uh, just really quickly want to go over uh, contribution limits that are increasing. We've talked about this before, but I think yep. it's a good time to go over it again. Again, agreed. Uh, 401ks, uh, $23,000 max contribution limit for those under the age of 50, and $30,500 for those 50 and older. Those are something called catch up contributions. Uh, for IRAs, um, the max contribution limit has increased to $7,000 for those under the age of 50, and $8,000 for those 50 and older. Uh, HSAs, $4,150 contribution limit for individuals and $8,300 contribution limit for families in 2024. Uh, QCDs, Matt, so qualified charitable distributions are now indexed to inflation and the max amount someone can make a QCD from their IRA in 2024 is $105,000. So uh, really quick, qualified charitable distribution or a QCD uh, is a uh, gift from someone's retirement account uh, that as long as it is going to a uh, qualified 501c3 organization, uh, you can move money out of your retirement account uh, you're doing good by giving to charity, and you do not pay tax on any of of that QCD. And in the past, the max was $100,000 per year, uh, but that recently just changed to be indexed to inflation. So that's why in 2024, uh, people are able to give $105,000 in the form of a QCD. Love it. Uh, uh, last but not at least RMDs, required minimum distributions, are no longer required from Roth 401ks. Uh, I know this should make people uh, happy because everyone's like, what's the point? Why do I have to take money out of my Roth 401k when the government not getting any tax revenue from it? Uh, that's all tax-free money, so this makes no sense. Uh, so uh, bill was finally passed that uh, RMDs are no longer required from from Roth 401ks, which is a, a good thing, in my opinion. Yep. Um, really quick, before we sign off here, Matt, just want to let people know if they want to create uh, their own podcast, please use the promo code Jessup Wealth to get your first month of Blueberry podcast hosting for free. To choose the ideal plan for you, use the host hosting estimator on their website. Again, you can receive your first month free with promo code Jessup Wealth. 
all lowercase, no spaces. Uh, anything else you want to mention before we sign off for the week? No, sir. I'm very, very quiet here at the end. Not much to say right now. Yeah, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, off to a good start so far this year, uh, inching closer and closer towards the tail end of uh, earnings season. Uh, but as always, want to thank everyone for listening to episode number 238 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We will be back with you next week for episode number 239. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.